Welcome to They Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello. It feels like forever I know. Since, I've, <laughs> since I've spoken. I know. How's How things? How are we all last recording? Oh, about a month ago. Uh, about a month ago, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's been it's been a minute. Chris has been to and from an entire other continent since we last spoke. Yeah, traveled the uh, world, and we we didn't even take the short route. We went around the long way just to save <laughs> the globe. Uh, no, if maybe if we had a month. <laughs> um, I'll have to tell y'all, like, if you ever do have kids, I don't know if that's in, something you're interested in, but like, Mitch and I, or well, yeah, my wife and I, we've never been interested in like touristy things, and you know, like we'll go like walk through Trafalgar Square, but we don't like really stop. It's just kind of like something we're like, okay, did it. But through the eyes of a child, man, that stuff is awesome. Like, it's so crazy. Like, the double-decker bus, the subway, like, the Buckingham Palace, like, like all that stuff in London that you're just kind of like, I don't know, I guess, I hate to say take for granted, but, like, it's just sort of there. And it's like, but through their eyes, it's, it's amazing. So it was, it was cool to see London through his eyes. You know, when I was uh, road tripping last year, uh, I went to Arizona. And one of the things I was like, you know what? I don't give a shit about the Grand Canyon. I was like, I've seen pictures of it my whole life. And I was like, it's a hole in the ground. But we were driving past the exit and it was the South Rim. And I was like, it's like a 10 minute detour. Let's just go ahead and go take a look at it. Yeah. It was a lot cooler than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty neat little thing. It was still just a hole in the ground, but it was nice to see it in person. So I can kind of get that too. Do they have like a replica of Paul Bunyan's axe anywhere? He's half of the half of it was closed. So a lot of that's I know they have a lot of stuff on the North Rim, but the North Rim was completely closed okay. down okay. for COVID. Okay. Um, so a lot of the touristy stuff's over there, but yeah, got a watchtower on the south side. Okay. Cool. Well, Very what about cool. you, Adam? What have you been up to? <laughs> working <laughs> pretty much <laughs> nothing uh nothing working finished my college year so i had some assignments mm. that need to send off thank god that's done um yeah just been just been working watching movies playing music pretty much my normal normal self for the last month mm. uh, but at least it's the summertime now so getting a, getting a few more things get some gigs going going to and playing some and things like that so yeah look, looking forward to having a bit more freedom for the next couple of months nice what was the name of that reggae guy is he, are you going to play with him next oh if i could do a feature set with ras tilly i would be very happy yeah <laughs> but unfortunately no he he disappeared like a like a spirit in the night you know it's just it, it, i felt like he only existed for that one night only and it was perfect uh, and, I, and i never want to ruin that <laughs> Uh, no, the, the band I'm going to see in July, um, they recently played, I don't know if you guys watched the late show with Seth Meyers, um, but they played on that the other night. They're a band from Dublin called Fontaine's DC. I think they'd be up your alley, Chris. They're like a post-punk, shoegazy yeah, kind of band. They've been around for a minute, right? I know them. Yeah, yeah. They've um, they've sort of like just gone, like got really big, really fast. They only released their first album in 2019 and they released their third album just like two weeks ago. And it's awesome um so i'm going to see them i'm going to see them twice this year i'm going to see them in july in dublin and then see them in, again in december in limerick and um, which is a city over in the west coast of ireland so uh yeah they're yeah. awesome so i'm looking forward to to seeing them 
But I suppose we'll talk about movies now. That's what we're here for, I suppose. We're not here for Adam's Adam's movie reviews and recommendations. But if you're listening, listen to Skinty Fia, the new album by Fontaine's DC. Not sponsored, but it's a great album, so everyone should listen to it. Um, So, (laughs) Can we do one admin thing just before we jump in? Yeah. Because, like, I just want to, like, publicly recognize anybody who's listening to this is now one of, like, over 100 people that listens to us every episode. And, like, Thank you all. That's nuts. Yeah, I just read it. We never actually addressed the audience. If you're listening, thanks so much for listening. Honestly, it's it made our day. You know, we see our, you know, the monthly numbers go up with every episode. And, you know, we're getting return listeners. You know, we see how many unique listeners listen to our podcast and those numbers match up with our streaming numbers. So for those who are regular listeners, we really, 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 really appreciate you guys. We know we don't really communicate. We don't really have that means but um, if you're listening, just know that we are very, very grateful for your listenership. Yeah, if you want to like find out, like call out who we are, find us on Reddit, find us on Instagram, something and say hi. Because uh, I'm like the, the geography is spread around. Like it's I don't know. I'm super. It's, it's just really cool. I'm very appreciative. Zach thinks you're assholes. It's true. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. I went, like 10 listeners back back into our personas now for the podcast back into our podcast okay movie time movie time movie time so the naked city jules dassin um i had seen this movie before um just to put it out there um i i really like this movie um for those who are unaware of what it's about or anything like that it's basically shot entirely on location in new york which is one of like the first big sort of movies to do this in 1948 and it essentially just depicts a police investigation that follows the murder of a young model. It's very bare bones. It's very simplistic. It's two cops, one sort of older, more grizzled Irish cop played by Barry Fitzgerald, one a much more younger guy sort of fresh off the beat as they both, you know, try and solve this murder with slightly sort of different styles. Um, what do you guys think? Is this your first time seeing The Naked City? Uh, have you seen it before? Did you, did you like it? or? This yeah. was my first time seeing it. Um, and I liked it. Um, Adam, you're much more into the noir thing than I, I would, definitely more than me. And I would say maybe more than Chris as well. It seems to be kind of your forte. But I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Um, like you said, it is very simple. So there were parts I'd remind myself like this is still kind of early-ish. So the simple plot's going to be there. The only the only thing that was kind of weird because the beginning it talks about that whole thing of like this was shot on location. You mentioned that, um, and I kept sitting there for like half the movie, like why was it shot on location? Because I couldn't tell you if it was because a lot of it, so much of it's inside. And then it got towards like the last act, and I'm like, ah, here we go. This is why yeah. it was shot on location. It just took a while. I was just like, huh? They could have yeah. shot the thing, and they would have been fine. <laughs> They, they really wanted to go for the authenticity, I think, of, you know, you know, moving away from sound stages, getting actually into the streets and into the buildings. And I'm pretty sure I'm literally quoting Mark Hillinger at this point, but into the streets, into the buildings, just to give that authenticity, because I feel like the film really goes for that kind of um, newsreel style, that really hyper-realistic style that, you know, film noirs before and after this, they were always very much, this is simply a, a work of fiction. It's a narrative film. It's designed that way. It's it's set up that way. Whereas The Naked City 
doesn't feel that way a lot of the time it does almost feel like you're watching a documentary or like a police procedural um or you know literally a camera following around some police officers sometimes um so i i would almost even struggle to even put it in the noir category and more so just call it simply a police procedural because it doesn't really have the same kind of aesthetic as an as a noir would if that makes sense yeah. Uh, what What about you, Chris? Have you had you seen it before? Yeah, I'm not. I I had so Rafifi is one of my favorite sort of like heist movies. Yeah. Um, it's like a slow cinema version of a of a heist movie. Um, but I love it. And uh, there's another one he did. I believe it's called Top Copy, which I can't talk in depth about. But I remember seeing it in theaters. It came through, and I remember loving it. So I was warm to Des- Jules Dustin just generally like coming into this. Uh, and it was not what I was expecting, but I wound up, it sort of stayed with me after I saw it in a way that I wasn't expecting. So I think I really like the movie. Um, the, the world puts this at 2,765 of all time. So respected easy, easy movie. Figure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, no, I have to imagine Rafifi's higher than that for, for Dustin. Uh, let me see. I'm just curious now. Just out of curiosity, because uh, yeah. I found this funny when I looked it up. Um, the way you're pronouncing his name, are you trying to do it like a French like pronunciation? or? I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Okay. I was going to say, he's a, he was actually American. Jules Dassin. Yeah, yeah, he was. The reason he worked on Rafifi is because he was blacklisted during the McCarthy era. Oh, I, I, maybe that's because I the way I got to know him was through Rafifi, but he wasn't French. I was, I was the exact same. Yeah, I thought he was French. And I was like, why is this French dude making a movie in America? I thought he was like Fritz Long. You know, he went there afterwards. And then uh-huh. I looked into it. And I was like, no, this dude was born in Connecticut. It's the opposite. Oh. <laughs> it's quite, yeah, it's the opposite. He went to Europe because he got blacklisted. Oh, good to know. Super interesting. Well, Jules Dassin then. Jules Dassin. Exactly. Exactly, <laughs> how, exactly how Mark Hellinger, which I will talk about fucking Mark Hellinger. Um, I'll talk about him shortly. But exactly how he pronounces it in the, in the opening of the film. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, yeah. um. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, you know, it's one of those movies that it sort of messes with style a lot, like in the way that I think French New Wave was famous for messing with genre a little bit. I think this kind of combined like a typical newsreel documentary style movie with like a police procedural. It kind of felt like it was a mix of these different different genres. Um, and I, I, think, I think they got it right. Like, I think they they did it well. And like, it was a highly entertaining movie. I never was bored or... Uh, you know, and I think, so I, I liked it. Yeah. So just, I want to get this like sort of off my chest when it comes to this movie, because it annoys the absolute fucking crap out of me. And that's the way Mark Hellinger will not shut the fuck up. Okay. So it's not just me. Thank God. No, it's, it's really not. It, it, <laughs> so for those not in the know, Mark Hellinger was the producer of this film. And for whatever ungodly reason, he decided that he was going to narrate this movie from the perspective of a producer so he's not even like an in-universe narrator. He's like literally talking to you as the guy who put this film together and said, oh, well, now he's doing this. And he's like telling you shit that you can see. It's like, here it is, a grimy old building on a grimy old street. And it's like, I can see that it's grimy. I don't need you to tell me this. I think the part that so annoying. Me, I think the part that got to me the worst was when I won't say which character, but one character is trying to get on a bus and it closes and he's narrating this. He's telling you what's happening. He's like, oh, 
gotta go try the subway and i'm like okay <laughs> not today buddy he says something along those lines you know it's just really it's just so annoying it's so corny you know it, it really i don't know i don't know how people felt about it at the time but it really it's just so corny listening to it i'd love a version of this film that just like edited all that out because it's so unnecessary as well yeah because it, like, it's that. a simple okay. story it's super simple yeah. <laughs> yeah do either of y'all used to watch a lot of the old goofy cartoons uh, probably but yeah maybe at some point life. sure yeah they used to do that a lot in in like the old goofy cartoons and um may, maybe some of the other disney stuff but like they would have a narrator sort of like you know oh well it looks like that's gonna be a tough one for him or you know that that kind of stuff that's like, exactly the style of this yeah. is so stupid it's it reminded it's, me of that it's I almost wonder if the producer's like hmm do, will kids like this murder mystery <laughs> of a model Hmm. <laughs> she murdered brutally enough. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it's now obviously away from the narration. The act, the acting, I thought was great the whole way through. Obviously, Barry Fitzgerald is is I like him, even though I fucking hate the Quiet Man. I do like Barry Fitzgerald. I think he's a good actor. Um, he does obviously play up the fiddly d ness of his accent. I suppose that's kind of the. You know, it's it's kind of the um, what's the what's the word? They're kind of like ah shucks, like the novelty, the novelty really of, of the fact that he's an Irish cop. Oh fiddly dee, diddly do Oh, I'm an Irish cop. Oh, I raised a family of twenty babies. Oh, do, do. you know <laughs> and, that kind and of it's way. interesting because New York is has so much Irish immigration in it, but he sticks out yeah. somehow, and he should kind of blend in there. Yeah, it's funny, but I, I do like him. He's very he's endearing. And um, I, I do like his his style as a detective. That kind of he's very cool. Um, I I do he's he's the most he's most he's the most uncool cool guy if that makes sense. You know nobody's calling Barry Fitzgerald cool, but he is yeah. cool in this in a way. If, if you know yeah. what I mean. He reminds me of Philip Baker Hall. That's that's the only person. Yeah, I yeah, that's that's, that's a watching. that's a really good comparison. I think a guy who's not really cool, but he just he just is cool though. <laughs> That's a good comparison. There's also um, the John Ford movie called Judge Priest or Judge. Hold on. That's a super yeah. racist one, right? Uh, it's John Ford. Yes. Oh, wait, it's John Ford. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. That doesn't narrow it down, I guess. That's all you need to know. <laughs> um, um, but the guy who plays in that is the is the, the American Southern equivalent of, of this. <laughs> is it called Judge Priest? Yeah. Oh, Will Rogers. There we go. Um, he has a real he has a real will will rogers vibe as well yeah Um, that's that name sounds familiar i I mean it's race he's in a lot of racist stuff (laughs) Uh, um, one 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 actor i do really like is uh howard duff in this film as frank niles he's such an interesting character you know he's just yeah like he's so obviously lying when he's lying but there is always something like there is always something different. Like you, I can't really describe it, but it's it's like you. He's so good at lying that you think he's finished lying. If that makes yeah, sense, exactly. he lies, and you're like, "Well, this dude's obviously lying," but he have he hasn't actually like given the whole game away. If that makes sense, right? Um, it reminds me of um when I'm watching it. There's a there's a movie called The Guard. It's an Irish movie, um, with Brendan Gleeson and um. Ah, uh, crap. What's his name? Don Cheadle. 
Brendan Gleeson, Don Cheadle. And Brendan Gleeson's an Irish cop in Ireland. And Don Cheadle's an FBI investigator. And they're trying to um, crack down on drug smuggling from America into Galway on the west coast of Ireland. And at one point, like Brendan Gleeson's character is kind of typical Brendan Gleeson, kind of like, you know, a bit bumbling, a little bit backward, you know, very funny. And at one point, Don Cheadle's character says to him, you know, I can't tell if you're really motherfucking dumb or really motherfucking smart. <laughs> and that's the way I kind of feel about Howard Duff's character. Right. By the way, The Guard, the Guard is a great movie. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it's it's really good. It's by uh, the, the brother of the guy who made him Bruges. So the two, okay. there's two, oh, there's two uh, director brothers, yeah. McDonough. I can't remember whether it was Martin or Michael McDonough. Um, whichever Martin one made him Bruges. Well, then it's Michael then, or John okay. Michael. One of, yeah, it's his brother anyway. And he made that film. It's, it's excellent. It's an excellent, really, really funny movie. Uh, would highly recommend. But uh, that's how I feel about Howard Duff's character, Frank Niles, in this. I can't tell if he's really stupid or if he is actually smart and he's just playing stupid really well, if that makes sense. Yeah, and he, it's interesting to, like, especially, I think, I guess it's really the first big scene he has with the cops. And he, like, on a dime will switch his story so quickly and, like, adapt it. Like saying, he says, well, I was uh, like, he's like, well, why you were in the war? He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, well, I have papers here that says you weren't in the war. And he's like, well, I, I couldn't because I was injured. He's like, well, what'd you do during the war? Well, I was doing business in Chicago. And then somebody else comes in and says, well, he, oh, that business was a failure. And he's like, I'm just, <laughs> he just like keeps going and going. And going. <laughs> he has just an endless stream of like <laughs> backup plans and backup stories. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very, he's a very funny character. I did. I did get a big kick off his character. I forgot about him, to be honest with you. I forgot it. I thought his character, when I was re-watching this and he came in, I was like, if I remember, this dude is like really sinister. And then I watched him like, no, I mixed this up. <laughs> <laughs> this dude's just kind of funny. Um, I, I was trying to see if I'd seen him in anything else. And I don't think I have. But interestingly enough, he was married to Ida Lupino for uh, 30 years. Oh, cool. Um, I knew him from Kramer versus Kramer. I think that's the only other thing when I looked him up, I had seen him in. I haven't seen that one, but I know it exists, obviously. Um, But I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm just looking at his filmography here again. I don't recognize anything, but yeah, recognize or married to Ida Lupino for 30 years. She is awesome. I have big respect for her. So that is cool. Um, The Naked City. do we want to get into like the ending or because I love the ending. It, it's tough because I feel like most of the like everything I, I like everything in it, but it gets interesting once the third act hits. Like I feel like that's the most interesting part of the movie. It's where it gets hitchcocky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I love I love the ending. That sort of final sort of set piece on the whatever bridge it is to Williamsburg Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge or I don't know. I'm not a New Yorkian as you can tell. I'm um, gonna Google it while you're while while we're figuring this out. It's the it's, it's it's the Williamsburg Bridge. It is okay. Okay. Uh, I have I have the Wikipedia page for the film open uh, as yeah. I always do when we talk about them. But maybe uh, as a segue to that said piece, like that the character of the boxer. Yeah, we're gonna talk to him about him in a minute. Um, I actually thought he was great. Like I, I liked him a lot. Um, like yeah. He, he, his acting was very big right like when he was like training in the room he had like these big movements and stuff it's kind of cheesy a little bit um but once he felt cornered a little bit and he kind of turned and and he saw that like other side of him and you saw him switch uh I, I thought he was menacing like i thought he did a good job are we seeing a bit of charlie bronson in him 
Yes. Oh. There's okay. a callback. Yeah. Have you seen that Bronson and him? I, I think so. And maybe we are basically I, casting the remake of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom Hardy. <laughs> Philip Baker Hall. Done. <laughs> Philip Baker Hall is surely dead at this stage. I don't think he is. Damn. Just put some makeup on him. Yeah, that'd be fine. Philip Baker Hall. Yeah, no, he's, still he's going. 90. He is alive. 90 years old. I don't think he could pull this off. His, <laughs> his Google images have oxygen uh, tubes. So Okay. Yeah, I don't I think he might be out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think he might be out. Um yeah, that definitely Tom Tom Hardy Bronson vibes from 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 uh, the boxer. Yeah. In this. I think I think the whole cast is great. There's honestly nobody, you know, nobody kind of holds this film back. I like, you know, I like the um, Barbie Strell's partner, the beat cop. Um, except for that weird scene where his wife is like insisting he beat the child, he beat their child. I, I was wondering when that was going to come back. Like, <laughs> it's such a weird so scene. So much time on that. And I kept thinking, like, somehow this is going to tie back in, right? So I thought about it the whole movie and I was like, oh, okay. That was She's there. just like <laughs> super into him beating their child with a belt. And like his wife was like, like she was like really wanting him to do it. Like she was like into it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you got called Weird. in like, "Don't you're 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 coward," and I was like, "Oh, okay, sure." So strange. That was, like, oh, that... Gotta work, gotta work, gotta go, Larry. <laughs> that that is a scene that could have been left on the cutting room floor. Um, very odd, very very peculiar scene. I don't yeah. really, I don't really see the point in it, other than maybe to show that he's like a righteous cop or something. That he's like a he's a real god. He's a good guy. I suppose it's probably hard to root for a cop who beats his child with a belt. Um, it's probably like, you know, you're not, it's not very endearing um, uh, to your audience. No, in the forties, I don't know that that would make a difference one way or the other. I just mean, I suppose. Yeah. Well, at the time, they I probably thought he was like super not. progressive. Like what's wrong with him? His son's going to end up being an asshole. Yeah. yeah like, this, <laughs> this, this liberal cop not beating his son. What the fuck is up with that? <laughs> You know, there's that there's that wisdom. Have you ever heard this saying before? Strong generations breed weak generations. Weak generations breed um, uh, something which leads to war, which leads to strong generations. But like the idea is that like everything kind of goes in a cycle. But it, the emphasis is on like it's good to be a strong generation, uh, and 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 that that whole like strong generation thing has to do with like stronger discipline on the kids, stronger like. You know, when my dad was in school in, in Louisiana in the 60s, his hand would get smacked with a ruler and he would get like publicly shamed for uh, if he misbehaved and stuff. So that wasn't that long ago. No, no, no. My, my father would have been the same, you know, it, like growing up, like in school in the 70s and the 80s, you know, in Ireland and in like Catholic schools and stuff like that. So yeah. uh, definitely not that far. I feel like what that, that saying you're talking about, I feel like I can see it on that bumper sticker of a big pickup truck in alabama somewhere <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly yeah exactly uh, yeah but yeah yeah so again i'm kind of drawn to the ending of this film because i think we should it, time stamp it yeah it's just it's well, I suppose we don't have to go into nitty gritty on who's who's on the, the the parties that are involved. We can just talk about the murderer gets chased eventually by the cops, and this is where the the as Zach was sort of alluding to earlier the the on 
on location shooting really kicks into gear. You really get that sense of like sweatiness of the city. Um, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of people around close quarters, a lot of hustle and bustle. Um, almost kind of like new wavy again, like what you were sort of alluding to earlier, Chris, as well, you know, like Godard shooting on the streets of Paris. Yeah. But it does crescendo into this, um, into this very Hitchcockian uh, ending, um, which I only say really because there's height involved. And we all know that Hitchcock loves a, a you know, a very a high altitude set piece. Um, that was his specialty. Um, as the, the murderer is being tracked down by the cops and he climbs up the Williamsburg bridge. And it's just this incredibly well put together scene It's well shot. It's really well edited and, it's 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 very tense it's probably because of the realism as an aspect you know unlike a hitchcock film which would have all been shot on a set and a lot of the time you can just kind of tell they're not really high up mm-hmm. you know right. we're, at, we're at ground level the cameras may be pointing up and there's like a you know a, a projector screen backlighting a, a sky you know it's it's it you can't really feel tense in those moments because it's so obvious that they're not really high up, but this is different. You know, this is a shot really on the bridge. This dude is actually, you know, up here, you know, getting shot at by the police. So it, it just kind of adds that realism. And, and that's what I think adds the tension to it and, and makes it a really, really great scene. I, well, I think what's interesting is like, that's something that's kind of still carried on with like New York shooting, right? Like Martin Scorsese was big on that in the seventies. You have people yeah. like low budget guys, like, We'll talk about Ferreira here soon, and we're going to talk about Bill and you know Bill Lusting. They were on, you know, they shot in New York. They that was a big part of making a gritty feeling city. And I don't know, there's something about set shooting that just feels weird with New York. I guess is the way it comes when, especially when you're shooting like outside. I'm actually surprised. I was looking on the special features if Martin Scorsese had done anything for it since he's so big into the Criterion stuff. But yeah, I didn't see it. I didn't, I almost was wondering if he would be listed for that. Yeah. Yeah. You and I were going to say the exact same thing, Zach. You know, William Friedkin comes to mind as well, but mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, Dustin, or sorry, Dassin did Dassin. this movie, <laughs> uh, you know, 30 years before, but it, it, it felt like it had some influence on them, maybe because, you know, New York became that whole fun city generation of New York folks became that it was just that grittiness and rawness added like a lot of emotions to the scenes, right? Yeah, 100%. I, I, I would agree. I would agree. Like, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I was literally just going to say, you know, does it, there's such a, a huge difference in visual aesthetics when you shoot on location in New York versus yeah. something like, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine or, you know, How About Your Mother where they're shot on a back lot in California. And so you know, it's it's quite obviously not a street they're walking down on, really. And that's not a that's not a, I'm not dissing those shows. I, I like those shows; they're fun. Um, but it's 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 incredibly obvious they're not shot on location. Even even Sex in the City, you know, does a great job of that as well. Um, you know, so yeah, there's just something different about shooting in New York, even compared to like films that shoot in like Vancouver and Atlanta over New York. It just feels different um when, when a movie's actually shot there if that makes sense there, there's a bunch of stuff that was shot in san francisco like the dirty harry movie and just some of these ones and i, I feel yeah. like san francisco has a similar vibe to it where it's like 100%. It's, it's really hard to recreate that 
yeah like dirty harry and vertigo you know they just they, they have the vibe you know with with the the sloping you know the the sloping streets and stuff like yeah. that you can't recreate that anywhere as much as you'd like to with all the money in the world you just you can't recreate um you know just the feel of the city yeah if that makes sense there is one thing i want to say though because i like the ending um can we talk about just one thing that's not necessarily a spoiler, but it's like a critical moment in the chase? Mm-hmm. So whoever the bad guy is and is getting chased by the cops and he shoots this dog, which is the way that they are like attention is drawn to him. Right. And it's not like, a, don't worry. It's not like they, I'm not complaining because they like the dog looks tortured or anything like that. Like, I think it even happens off screen. But my point is. That's, that's one part in the movie where I was like, ah, oh, it's so contrived as to like why they would find him. Like, I, he, I don't think he would really do that as a character. I think I think he would, though. He's shown as being this um, really, um, what's the word? Like impulsive or something? Impulsive. Yeah, exactly. I feel like he would. That's just me. That's just my feel for the character. We don't see a lot of him. That's true. Fair. We don't see a lot of the character. We just kind of hear about him through other people, through stories as the cops are sort of gathering intel on him. Um, I feel like he would. Maybe okay. you feel like he wouldn't. You know, that's, I think I suppose that's part of I, I get what you mean, though. Um, it's convenient. Yes. Um, so convenient. I, I would say convenient more than contrived. Um, I get where you're coming from, but I still feel like, I, I feel like that is something that his character would do. I, I think I was just more distracted by the fact, because... I, I don't know. I didn't actually expect him to shoot the dog, even though we don't see it. We do see the body of the dog yeah. like a few seconds later. And I was like, huh, really didn't expect that. So I don't even know if I even thought about it beyond that. And listeners, if it doesn't annoy you already that the dude shot a dog, well, it wasn't just a normal dog. It was a guide dog for a blind man. Exactly. So It's so dark. Like, there why? you go. It's such an <laughs> ass, such an asshole move. Well, there are 8 million stories in New York City. Ah, oh, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, well, after, after that um, brilliant segment end, uh, I'd like to introduce us now to Collection Corner. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, you know, a month away from the, uh, uh, doing a podcast means that I've, I've bought a fair amount of things. Uh, so I'll try to keep this short. Um, but the, the tricky thing about March and April is it's when a lot of the boutique labels sort of get antsy for cash. So there's like a million sales going on. Um, so some of the stuff has come in. But just briefly, I want to mention, Adam, you told me about a, a store in London called FOP, which has an unfortunate name. But the store itself is amazing. Um, yeah, it's great. Like, great store. I'm sure that I think there's multiple ones. The one I went to was like right outside Chinatown and you walk. Yeah, there's in, a few in the UK. It's not even just London. I think it, there's a few of them across like the entire UK. And it's just like an alternative to HMV, I guess. Essentially. Yeah. That's what it seems. Um, I wasn't too familiar till I went to London last year and saw it there, which is why I told you about it. It's great. So as soon as you walk in, there's like a arrow limited edition shelf, <laughs> like, so I, I got a, something from that. Um, they're, they're Rogue Cops and Racketeers, which I don't believe was released in the States. I could be wrong. Zach, you're better at that kind of stuff. But I think it was only a Region B release, but it's two more Polizia Tecci films. 
Um, but then they had basically downstairs in the basement, they actually broke out the different region B boutiques and they had like a lot of their releases for each one. It was awesome. So I got um, two from 88 films and two from Shameless, which I don't actually know too much about them, but I got uh, Argento movie, Four Flies on, uh, of, on Grey Velvet. And oh, then, I know the one you're talking about now. Yeah, it's they're done up like yellow, like the Jallo books. Yeah, know, yeah. And then the other one was Stage Fright or Aquarius, I guess, which... Um, so good. Such yeah. a good movie. Yeah. Um, Michel Suave, I think he was pretty closely connected, or uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I hope I didn't butcher it. But I think he was closely connected to Argento. He was. I, he, uh, okay. he was an actor in... Uh, he, he, he was... He helped with camera work with Argento. I think he was an actor in Demons. Okay. Um, so he was all with those type of guys. But yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was awesome. And he made a movie called The Church, which I think Argento produced or something even, right? He, he did The Church, The Sect, um, Stage Fright, and Cemetery Man were his four horror movies. Oh, okay. um, after that, he, from my understanding, had like a family tragedy. And now he mostly just does TV work. But um that was his those are his four big horror films i mean man well i don't want to get too much on this detour but i mean as some of them are as good as argento films if not better <laughs> cemetery man's my favorite if you i don't know if you've seen that one or not but i love cemetery man i, I, I don't know anyway yeah I, yeah maybe, but uh uh yeah aquarius is, is amazing so um got that so i'll, I'll just leave it at that if, if you're visiting london and um or, or, or live there and for some reason don't know about FOP, check them out. They're very great. And, and then I'll just quickly say I'm so geeked out because uh, Vinegar Syndrome put out Death Wish 2. And uh, that in itself is exciting, um, but also it means they're going deeper into the MGM catalog, which has me very excited. Uh, I, I just, you know, it's between Severin and Vinegar Syndrome and Arrow, I guess, like these boutiques are going to, they take care of these movies. Like they're just, they do such a good job on these releases. So if the studios are starting to trust them with some of this stuff, that would be fantastic. Um, I'll, I'll stop there for now. There's a few more things that came in, but that's some of the stuff, the highlights, I guess, from what I've been collecting. What about you, Zach? So I guess the, both the best and worst part about collecting is the inevitable upgrades to things you already own. Um, you know, I've, own several movies from VHS all the way to 4K now. But I had Mondo Vision's smaller edition of Possession yeah. um, that I'd gotten a few years ago. And I just couldn't help myself. I had no need for it. It was probably in most rational people's minds a waste of money. But I was able to get the big edition that they put out of 2,000 copies of. Uh, their seller in, I think he's in Arizona. He has an eBay one, so he'll put them up randomly. He'll just say, hey, here's another copy that came in. Here's, here's, here's one for Mondo Visions. I want them to do more stuff because they, they make such cool stuff. Um, I'm almost tempted to get a few of their movies that they haven't upgraded to Blu-ray. They're still DVDs, but they're in the same sort of box. has this like velvet finish on it. Yeah. Really great sets. Uh, I'm hoping they're not... They, they release so seldomly that I don't even know if they're still in business or if they're still active, but hopefully they are. They make great stuff, but that was kind of my big thing recently. So I will hand it off to Adam. 
what we do in this um in this segment is we often talk about the great things about different blu-ray companies and, and stuff like that am i allowed to speak honestly about uh, a blu-ray company just for a moment um oh yeah i just kind of i just kind of want to voice my disappointment and I, i've i've told you guys this sort of you know separately in chat and stuff just my disappointment in in arrow the sort of last 12 months i feel like in terms of like all the sort of major labels they're the ones who've maybe you know maybe maybe gone downhill might be a little bit, bit, bit a little bit harsh but i feel like they have just not been they're just not the same as they were like a couple of years ago in terms of the the not necessarily the quality of what they put out, you know, obviously their, their work in itself and the people who work, you know, with Darrow putting together all the packaging, it's all, it's all amazing as always. It's just in terms of the constant repackaging of product, Yeah, you know, putting, getting films that already have individual releases and just putting them into a box set and calling it new. They've been doing it with the Fassbinder films, like all those Fassbinder films and those box sets that have been coming out they've been out for years already and in, as individual discs and they're doing it with that giallo essentials i do quotation marks on the essentials because they're very much not essential giallo movies um you won't find any argentos or bavas in those box sets um and yeah it's just it's been disappointing every month you know it just seems to be like they have put out some good stuff like interspersed i'm not saying all their outputs been bad um but it, I, I just feel like I've been really disappointed with their physical media output in terms of repackaging things. Obviously, I know they want to upgrade stuff to 4K. I don't really have much of a problem with them doing that. You know, I've been putting out the Argento stuff out on 4K and stuff. Do we need four different versions of Tenebrae? Don't think so. I don't. Do we need four different versions of True Romance? Probably not. You know, I, I just, yeah, I feel like there's been a shift in the big wigs so you know i know that we obviously had james white on the podcast it's not directed towards him or any of the people who are on the ground doing the production work on this stuff they're not in control over this kind of thing but i feel like maybe there's some upper big wigs after their takeover that happened last year that are, are maybe pushing them in a in a more economical direction from arrow's point of view if that makes sense now one thing i will say the arrow player is phenomenal yeah, I absolutely love the streaming service. It's amazing. It's honestly, it's like neck and neck with the Criterion channel in terms of like how often I use it. I even Ooh. find myself using the Arrow Player more, probably because it's just easier for me to access because I can get it in Ireland without using VPNs. I can get the app on my iPad, and I can, but I can't do that with the Criterion channel. Um, I. The Arrow Player is amazing. The fact that they have stuff on the Arrow Player now before they've even physically released it, you know, like the the second uh, Chabrol set they're putting out, those films are already on there now. That's that cool. film, that cover ripped off World on Wire. I can't remember uh-huh. the name of it, but we all know it's, yeah, it's that film that ripped serious. off the world. <laughs> yeah, that one. That's already on there. You know, these films that haven't even been physically released yet, they're already on the channel, which is amazing. You know, a lot of the time with these sort of players and channels, with the Criterion channels as well, you have to wait a couple of months before they'll put the new physical releases on there. And that's only if they can get the rights to it. Whereas with Arrow, they just seem to be like just on there as soon as they go out, straight on there, which is great. So Arrow, if you're listening, keep up the great work with the player. It's amazing. But just know myself and a lot of other people online are maybe a little bit worried about 
the direction the physical output's going. You know, I'm kind of curious because, you know, as you mentioned, a big thing is the repackaging. Like, I have an upgraded RoboCop because it's the same packaging I already have. So I'm like, somebody will throw a 4K disc on eBay eventually, and I'll just buy that um, and throw it in there. But the one, I almost wonder if Criterion will end up in the same boat a year or two down the line because they're kind of hitting, now that they've hit 4K, they're kind of starting to hit it hard, which I'm for. I've wanted that for years. But I'm curious if they'll follow the same sort of thing because they put out they've re-put out a couple, right? So they put out Mahalan Drive, yeah, Red Mahalan, Shoes. Red Shoes. And just to be clear, I, I have no problem putting out upgrades. Yeah. That's no problem. But putting a group of Blu-rays that have been individually released into a Blu-ray box set, that's that's what I have a problem with. Yeah. And I suppose Criterion technically did this with the Bergman set, but the Bergman set's fucking awesome. So I'm not gonna talk to them about it. Um, no bias. Yeah, I, I have no problem with the upgrades. Upgrading to 4K, if you're re-releasing something that was on Blu-ray and now there's a 4K available, that's cool. That's perfect. You know, companies have been doing that, you know, for years because obviously everything was on DVD first and then they started putting out Blu-rays to upgrade them. That's not a problem. What I have a problem is getting five individual Blu-rays, taking them together, putting them in a flimsy box and charging an extra 10 bucks on top because they're in a box. That's what I have a problem with. It, it was funny you mentioned the Jally one because I almost wonder if they wanted to name it something like Forgotten Jally and then realize Vinegar Syndrome already did that. Yeah. Oh, did that's kind of what they are. They're, they're Honestly, like, they're really, yeah. my, my assumption was they were just the ones that weren't really selling. So they had to like yeah. put them in a set and like call it Jallo Essentials to entice people that maybe they should buy these films. Because yeah. they were always the films that I avoided during the sale. I used to be a big Arrow sale buyer. And I haven't bought anything directly from Arrow in about a year. So I'll just speak to the, uh, this is not as a defense for them, but I've, just, I've been thinking about this because obviously I've heard some of the similar complaints coming through. And, and I mean, you see that anyways, when, it, when it, the release comes, you're like, really? Um, but, you know, Arrow's kind of actually always done this. So it, I, because of this obsessive part of my brain, you know, when I started collecting Arrow, I started finding the American releases right before I went region free, but it was AVO1, right? And then AVO2. And by the way, they've publicly stated they don't have a spine system. So this is only yeah. my obsessive brain, right? But if you go through like AV1 through 100, it's pretty much all like, it's pretty much 100 different movies. But between 100 and 200, they start getting into steelbooks and um, uh, re-releasing some of the early movies that were limited editions the first time. And then between 200 and 300, there's maybe 40 to 50 new releases. And now they're into the 300s and possibly, no, 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 I think they're 400s now. Um, so this trend has been coming for a while. Um, I think they were maybe more savvy about it before like a steel book is different, you know, like it makes sense to release a limited edition and then like a retail version or like a box set and then release that's like limited and then release the individuals like solo afterwards or something like that. Um, but yeah, the fact that they're like the essentials box is not really like an exclusive kind of like designer thing. It's just like a, they got like a pretty image and stuck these discs in it and kind of like released it quickly. Yeah. Um, maybe it feels like it's not a reason for it or something, you know, it feels a little bit strange. Uh, yeah. 
but they, they've, they've kind of always done this, I guess, is my, my point. They're just not being as savvy about it now, I guess. Hmm. Uh, and, I would like and, to reiterate, everyone here loves Arrow to death. They're great. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been, I guess it's what it was in the hut. I, they were bought out by them, right? Group, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's going to be changes once that happens, obviously. That's when I noticed the, yeah. the, the, the real sort of change was you know, sometime this time last year, maybe a little but longer ago. This is like, you know, I, I hope, uh, well, I, I mean, I don't want to like drag anybody's name in the mud. I think this is common knowledge. You know, this is all like the Bill Lustig school of, of DVD, DVD production, right? <laughs> like everybody from Anchor Bay in the DVD world, Blue Underground, Synapse, like all, I mean, this is what they do, right? This is like the thing. You like re-release a movie as many times as you can when you have the rights to it. Um, so even in the world of DVD collecting, I, I, maybe it hasn't been as common in Blu-rays, but this reminds me a lot of the DVD days when you'd walk in and there'd be like nine versions of Evil Dead, and you're kind of like, okay, which one do I want? Because <laughs> four of them are limited. It's yeah, and I guess, I guess that is a good point, because I, I guess as the more physical media becomes more niche, the less you're like, okay, I don't need two or three versions of this movie. Just release yeah. one really good one, and we'll call uh-huh. it a day. <laughs> uh-huh. Make it simpler. Who was it? Uh, was it Phil recently? From Fractured Visions that, that set, or, or maybe Indicator. No, it was, of course, it was Anthony from Indicator. He said, you know, they want to be the definitive edition, right? Yeah. They, they, they understand the collector's mindset. Like they want to tap into that and be like the definitive edition, which is different from the DVD days, right? Where it was just like one of 10. Everybody had to buy D- Everybody was a DVD collector. Uh-huh. You didn't know anyone who wasn't because right. that's the only way you could watch anything. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe softening my my take on Arrow a little bit, but I I do hope they put out new beautiful releases of movies they haven't already released because they're good at it. I wish they would do it more. Yeah, like the recent Claude Sharperall sets are like a perfect example of the Arrow of old. You know, beautiful looking sets, really really nice artwork. Mm-hmm. They haven't released the films any you know before. They haven't been available on Blu-ray in Region B before. And um, that's a perfect example of when they can do something right. A good yep. recent example. And even the Policia Techi set, I'm pretty sure that's kind of new as well, isn't it? Um, the one that you mentioned. Um, yep. you know, those are those are examples of when they can do really good when they repackage a bunch of Fassbinder movies into a box that you know that that have already been released. That's lazy. That that to me is lazy. But it's it there's proof there that they can still they can still do really good stuff. I would just hope that they would lean more towards that stuff. Um All right, and welcome back. Now we're going to be going through my pick. It's been a while, so if you don't remember, uh, each week we're taking turns and picking a movie to kind of pair with one with a, one of our Criterion picks because we did The Naked City. I decided to pick uh, King of New York, which is by Abel Ferreira, um, starring really great cast, uh, Christopher Walken, David Caru- Caruso. Is it? I think I'd say something. Yep. David Caruso, yeah. CSI Miami guy. <laughs> well, Lawrence Fishburne and Wesley Snipes, a bunch of great people. Uh, it's about a drug kingpin released from prison and seeks to take total control of a criminal underworld in order to give back to the community. So this is uh, Adam's very first Abel Ferreira movie, so I'd love to hear what he thought about it. Yeah, this film's fucking awesome. I'll take good. that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good movie. You know, from, <laughs> from, from the start, I was hooked. You know, it's, 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 really, it's really great. The cast is phenomenal, as you mentioned. 
Like, like I said, Christopher Walken, David Crusoe, Larry Fishburne, as uh-huh. I said. Larry Fishburne, Wesley Snipes, Giancarlo Esposito, Steve Buscemi shows up in one scene. You know, it, the list kind of goes on. It's a it's a really, really great cast. It's really, it's a really cool, like manic movie. It's like a different energy. Um, you know, I've heard a lot about Abel Ferreira. I'd never seen any of his movies or anything like that, but like he just has like this this different kind of energy with his films. It was really interesting. Um, I was pretty much hooked from like this. I was like five minutes into the movie and I like messaged one of my friends who like who, who really likes um really likes gangster movies. I'm like, have you ever seen The King of New York? And he goes, Yeah, man, that film is so good. And I'm like, I knew five minutes into this movie that you would love this. <laughs> because <laughs> it's just it's yeah, it's 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 really, it's honestly really, really great. Um yeah, I will obviously get into the, the sort of plot semantics and things like that and and what there's there's a, there's a couple of things in this film that I thought was really cool, just like energy wise, and a few creative choices that I thought was really was really really nice. But um, what what you had seen this before, Chris? If I remember right, is that correct? Yeah, it had been a minute, and you know, I, I I forgot about this, but seeing Naked City so close, I remember I was so annoyed when Mark Hellinger was narrating this movie as well. <laughs> <laughs> See, my uh, problem was I got mixed up when I watched the Pete Davidson comedy, The King of Staten Island. And, <laughs> yeah. All these King movies out there. Uh, like why the hell did Zach choose this one? Yeah. <laughs> um, ha- have you seen Adam by Chance? Have you seen Driller Killer? No, this is my. I looked through his filmography. I've never seen any any other album. Oh, that's right. That's how movie. it started. That's right. That's right. Yeah, never um, seen any of his films. Okay, I won't go that path. But I, I just this is just a, a like right out of the gate. This guy like made his mark on on movies. You know, like he just has a very unique style. And, and I love the fact that he made this movie and then I think directly after this Bad Lieutenant or very soon it, after. Mm-hmm. Directly two years after. later. So you get like this, this kind of inverse thing where Christopher Walken is this like kind of morally driven bad guy. And then um, um, Harvey Keitel, right? Is mm-hmm. this like morally corrupt and, and defunct uh, uh, cop. And I, I like that he did these two movies back to back. If you have a chance in the next few weeks, to watch Bad Lieutenant like so close to this, I think it would be a cool um, pairing. Not, this... not the Nicolas Cage one, if I, correct? Uh, no, but you should definitely watch that uh, just because Abel Ferreira hates Werner Herzog because of that movie. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, perfect. Well, the whole thing Sounds is good. like the studio wanted it to be called Bad Lieutenant and Herzog just didn't give a shit. He's like, sure, why not? And <laughs> so it's not even a remake. <laughs> oh, okay. Sort of similar plots and that's it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the world puts this at 2,193. So that's, that's close to that's Naked close City, right? That's close to Naked City, yeah. yeah. Which is which is Naked, which was yeah. ahead? Uh, King of New York is ahead. Oh, okay. interesting. interesting. Yeah, okay. Naked City is 25 or 2,700. 20, um, nice. I, you know, I, I think, like, there, there's a movie, yeah, Bad Lieutenant is the highest ranked Abel Ferreira movie at, at 879. But anyways, there's a moment in this movie where it all clicked for me why I liked it so much the first time, right? And, and I'll just quickly walk you through, uh, the, and, then, and we can get into more discussion. But you see the, the gritty New York, and you see Christopher Walken get out of jail. And for the first like five minutes or 10 minutes, you see the two worlds, right? Everything Christopher Walken does is exquisite and glamorous. And uh, there's like, you know, like you, you see him with the two women and he's like, He's like, uh, he seems just like he's above everything. Like he's, 
he, you feel like he's almost like uh, like a fine, like a three-star Michelin meal, you know, it's like his character. He, like he lives in that world. Um, and then there, obviously you see like the, whatever Larry Fishburne is doing and you see this drug exchange gone bad and you see bloodshed. And then you cut back to like this clean world of Christopher Walken where he's like coming out of jail and he's like above it all. And you see him and meet with Larry Fishburne. And you're like, what's going to go down here? And the exchange is heated at first. And then Christopher Walken busts out a dance move. And, <laughs> and I'm like, that's exactly what, like, okay, I'm in. Like, it just grabs you immediately. And I think that sort of, the, the way that Ferreira set that up and, and pulled off that scene to like immediately draw you into this world and keep you there, I think is something that he does so well. Uh, and then we can get into the moral ambiguity stuff later because I don't think I've ever I've ever known a director that does moral ambiguity better than Ferreira. Maybe or at least he's he's up there with the ones that are the best at it. But yeah, that that's the thing to me that like you know five minutes into this and you're like hooked. You're like, who is this Christopher Walken guy? Like you know he's different. I love it. What you said there, the the contrasting of the two worlds, that's exactly what I was really drawn into this film by, the way it contrasts the opulence with like the poverty and the griminess. Yeah. Uh, like I said, one moment you're in these sort of lush hotel rooms, really lavish lighting, everyone's like dressed to the nines, yeah. and then it will, it will just cut to the next scene and it will be this dark, gritty, grimy street. Um, there's, there's, there is kind of like a racial aspect to it. The opulent seems to be the white world and the impoverished, grimy seems to be the black world. And Christopher Walken kind of acts as the puppet master for a lot of his sort of um, drug pushers and, you know, heavy, you know, the, the heavies, the guy who gets to, mm-hmm. you know, do his killing and stuff. They're, they're all black. So there is this kind of, you know, maybe sort of racial undertone that he's kind of like controlling them. And there is that sort of white power element to it. But I don't know if that's strong enough to really sort of say for sure, but that, that's kind of the vibe I got. But at the same time, Christopher Walken is it's just different gravy in this film. He's just, he's just complete. Like I said, when he busts at the dance move, you know, or, and, and he does that a few times in the movie. He just yeah. starts with these really weird sort of manic dance moves that reminds yeah. me of the dwarf from Twin Peaks, where he <laughs> dances in the red room. And just so so bizarre and this is why i said it, the film is very manic because there's so much serious stuff that happens in this movie but then the the gun fighting is all like super over the top of blood going everywhere like proper action movie style if chris walk chris walken is doing weird stuff every now and again um yeah it's just it's just it's such a different movie it's just a, a different vibe to like any other sort of crime gangster movie. Like you'd never see a character in like a Martin Scorsese um, or like a Michael Mann movie yeah. or anything like that do this shit. You would, ne- you would never see it. Yeah. Um, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't lessen the impact of like the action and the plot and the drama. It doesn't like turn it into a comedy or anything like that. If anything, it just kind of makes the characters feel a bit more fleshed out and real yeah, and human exactly. because not everybody is like Don Corleone all the time. People like to have, you know, people like to have a bit of fun when they're in a good mood. And Chris, you know, Chris Walken's character, um, Frank, shows that, you know, he's not always super serious. He's able to be human sometimes. Frank is a really interesting character anyway, because, you know, you mentioned Don Corleone, but he 
he kind of has that mix of like that Don Corleone and that Tony Montana, that sense that he can control a lot. <laughs> like he's going through, yeah. but he doesn't mind like doing business on his own. He does it several times in the film. If he's got something that needs to be done himself, he'll do it. And it's, it makes him weirdly relatable. Like it almost gives him this every man sort of feel, yeah. even though he's got like all this going. One of the scenes I love the most, and I think it really summed up his character a lot was when he's in the subway and those guys come in. One of them's Harold uh, Perunu, I want to say. Is how Dude you say from Lost, name. isn't it? Yeah, the yeah. guy from Lost. I was like, in. that's Michael from Lost. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they come in to mug him, and he shows that he's got a gun, but instead of doing anything with it, he throws them some cash and says, come meet me at, you know, where I yeah. can do that, and I'll give you a job. And I was like, that kind of really shows how he knows how to politicize. He's like, there's no need to shoot him because I can get him to work for me. Yeah. And do what I need them to do. Yeah. And they need money. So, <laughs> I mean, and you know, he probably would have been a pretty good mayor, honestly. Okay. I was going to wait to ask this question until later, but now that you went down there, here's like the central thing for me that I, I love about this movie. And I think might be some good discussion. I don't know. Maybe not. But who's, who's the best person to lead a city like New York, right? Because I think one of the things that I think this movie does very well is the cops are not crooked, at least as far as we know, they're not, I mean, the, the ones that they show are not like in drug deals and like corrupt. They're not on the take yeah. on the take. Right. So he, it, he doesn't go down that tempting path to show them as like easy targets for the bad guys or to give them like a moral, the bad guys, a moral reason to like include them in the killing or whatever. Right. So he presents these cops that like have honest intentions as far as we can tell even if they're a bit un, like untamed and wild. And then he presents Christopher Walken, who, uh, are there any spoilers in this movie? I'm trying to think if we talk about his motivations, is that a spoiler? Unless we talk about like literally like the last scene of the film, I think pretty much everything's fair game. Okay. Yeah. At, at one point in the movie, he talks about his motivations and he's like, you know, because he's, he gets his team to start killing some of these drug lords. And he's yeah. like, they're doing it the wrong way. There's like 13 year olds that are being held up as sex slaves. Or there's like, you know, he's like, I don't want to run my city that way, right? So he has this like very clear, honest intention, as far as we can tell, and his own morality, almost like a Thanos type character of like he has his own morality, right? But he, but he's very clear in it, and he and he has no problem killing. Like he definitely has like a, he's probably a sociopath, right, or whatever that. Like he 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 loves killing. It seems like like he really gets off on it, right? So he's like this really complex character. Um, and I, I, you know, like what, who is the right kind of person to lead a city like New York? Like, is there any room for it to be like actually a criminal, you know, if they, if they're kind of like led morally or something, you know what I'm trying to say? Well, you have to remember a lot of, a lot of politicians are criminals anyway. The difference being that they, they do it to prop themselves up, whereas he seems to do it because you know, he actually wants to help. I wasn't expecting you to crack out a, a Thanos comparison. Um, <laughs> so I am slightly taken aback, but it does, it makes absolute sense. And all I can think of now is that Thanos quote, it's a small price to play for sal- small price to pay for salvation. Right. But it's true, you know, killing triads and Colombian drug lords in order to get a hospital in the Bronx to stay open. That's a small price to pay for salvation, I think. Um, so yeah, you know, he's he, he he's complex of course you know i do i think he would be a good mayor no probably not 
you know, because he would just kill anyone who tried to take it away from him. Uh, we'd end up, we'd end up like in Soviet Russia, you know, where he would just end up killing whoever, you know, was sniffing around. But what makes him likable as a character, even though he is a criminal, he's like you said, probably a sociopath. He at least has an, an, a noble end game. His, his end yeah. game is that he wants the city to be thriving. He wants to be the one driving that he wants, you know, people to be, he wants people to be okay, but he also has no problem killing people to make the rest of the people. Okay. So he is like that. This film is basically Avengers infinity war. So don't watch King of New York. Just watch that instead. And it's the same thing. You know, I'm surprised we got into a Marvel reference before we got into a Robin hood reference. Nice. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> Disney really has a spider short and curlies. Um, yeah. Well, there, there, what about, um, actually go ahead. I, I, I lost my train of thought, but go ahead with Robin hood. That's interesting. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's, there's no like one-to-one appearance. I don't think there's a sheriff in Nottingham here or anything, but I mean, the idea of taking from the rich and giving to the poor and, you know, that's the kind of story that meant something in 1990. It still means something now, especially when you talk about class divide and New York is kind of just the center of that, you know, yeah, you have yeah. the people who live up in the high penthouses and you have the people on the street who are having to deal in to survive. And yeah. that's just, the advantage he takes like um you know that i think that's why there's an argument there of you know how interesting you want to make your characters what you imprint on them does he care about these people or does he use them i don't know if you guys played red dead redemption but it kind of reminds me of uh the negative ass version of that is like dutch who uses the native americans to help him with a lot of his criminals stuff because he knows they're underappreciated by the government he knows they're being attacked so he's like, okay, I'll use that to my advantage. These people are in need of help. I will give it to them for my own gain at the end, sort of idea. Means to an end. Yeah. I mean, there, Adam, in the beginning, you said that there might be something racist with the way that he sort of like has power over a lot of the black community there. Hmm. Um, may, maybe, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm wrong in this, but I actually interpreted that slightly differently. Do you remember there's a scene where he goes in and he tries to do deal with a guy named Artie Clay? And Artie Clay says, I won't ever do business with somebody who works with black people. He says it in a much more offensive way. But, oh, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Near the, near the start when he first gets out. Yeah. yeah. And like, I kind of feel like, you know, Walken is more in this, in this play, or I guess Frank White, the character, is more like he sees there's a group of people who are hungry and ready to rise up and like become the next leaders, right? Like Larry Fishburne would do anything for him, right? And, and like, I guess there is always a power dynamic as a mob boss with the people that are like working for them. But um, I, don't, I don't know, like he, it just like his relationship with a lot of the black uh, characters in the movie feels so natural. Yeah, maybe I miss, maybe I was I either misspoke or it was misinterpreted. I wasn't necessarily saying that I felt that Frank's character itself was you know racist or like a slave leader or whatever um kind of you know that kind of dynamic okay. it was more about the just white people in general were the opulent rich ones and oh. that was it was it, so kind of like the class dynamic but more towards more more towards the racial aspect of it where sure. the class difference like we're shown 
two different classes essentially it just happens that all the rich class happen to be white and all the lower class impoverished tend to be black that's more so what i meant rather than a a power dynamic if that makes sense so i'm sorry if that came across wrong um oh no I, I, for sure that's true and i think that he's in a weird way like that's what makes his character so um engaging i guess i don't know the right word but like like he it seems like he's willing to fight for anybody who's willing like to kind of share his vision right like he doesn't care like if you're yeah. on the ride with him like he'll fight for you yeah as long as you're on his side if you cross him you're you're a goner um I want to talk about the cops before I do. There's a, there's a technical aspect of this film that I just want to speak about um, just in terms of the actual filmmaking itself, rather than the plot or, or the themes. Um, there's this moment, there's a couple of moments that happened throughout the film that just, it was just so different. Um, and there's these moments where Ferreira essentially shows us a scene with what I'm going to call realistic sound design. And by that, I mean is, characters are obscured or kind of far away so we don't really hear them properly there's a scene in the theater kind of early in the film Mm -hmm. where a group of characters are all kind of standing together and you can't really hear what any of them are saying which would be realistic if you were kind of standing close to them in a theater with all the sort of mumbles from different people kind of merging into you know sound and there's a scene then later in the film up in frank's apartment where him and I can't remember his that sort of girlfriend he has, but they're kind of walking down the balcony and you can see their mouths moving, but you can't really hear them because the street is so noisy. You don't oh, really yeah. hear them until they get closer to the camera. Mm-hmm. And like in any other film or most films anyway, you know, that would all be dubbed over or they'd have microphones on the actors or, you know, and so you'd be able to hear them the whole way down the balcony. Right. But Ferreira doesn't do that. He only lets you hear what they're saying when they get close enough to the camera as if you're kind of standing there. And I just thought that was a really interesting sort of um, creative choice. Um, it's, it's something I'd never really seen before uh, in this kind of movie, you know, in, in a film that's very sort of, um, you know, it's not like a low budget, you know, indie film or anything like that. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a really well put together movie on a big yeah. budget. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like it's not like he couldn't have done it if he didn't want to that kind of way. He wasn't limited by, you know, the he wasn't limited by money or anything like that. If he wanted to have, you know, hear what the characters were saying, that it could very easily be done. Um, so I just thought it was a really interesting choice. I don't really have a, a reason behind why he would have done it. And um, perhaps maybe just to add to kind of like the um, the murkiness of what people are discussing, perhaps, or just maybe adding a bit of realism to the scenes, because he only does it in, in a couple of in those couple of times. Maybe he does it more, but I, I really especially noticed it in those two scenes. Uh, and I just wanted to point it out because I just thought it was really cool. Uh, it's something that I wasn't. It, it kind of took me aback when it first happened. I'm like, that's. Uh, it made me really notice it from a technical point of view. I think with Ferreira, where he's got such an extensive history with low budget exploitation i you know even when he got bigger budgets he seemed to bring that sensibility to him i mean when we get to the violence which i'm sure we'll talk about here that's very much what you would expect to see out of 70s exploitation to the sense that all right we have uh a million dollars uh about eight hundred thousand of that's going to the effects by the end of the movie Uh so let's make this as cheap as possible and Uh we'll make it all worth it at the end um Uh And I, and, I, and I think that's just a sensibility he has. And I also think it's him 
feeling like that outsider, like, eh, you know, this is how it's done in Hollywood and I don't care sort of idea. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I, I, that would be my guess of why he does it. It's just what he's used to. But it's a good point. And that it, makes sense. It gives some yeah. texture to him. Yeah, for sure. It's it's something different like that. I never really would have expected from a film, you know, of this sort of, you know, high production value, if that makes sense. It just, I just wasn't expecting it. And I thought it, was, I, it just, it was just something different. You know, sometimes when you watch these kind of movies, you, you know, you look out for something different. And that was something different that that jumped out at me that, that made me kind of notice his own sort of technical style. Uh, but back to the murders. Um, back to the... <laughs> what everyone um, was waiting on. Yeah, yeah. The viol- yeah, the violence in this film. It did take me aback. I wasn't expecting it to be. Obviously, again, I knew nothing of Ferreira. I didn't know he made a film called The Freaking Driller Killer. If I knew that, <laughs> perhaps I would have been more prepared. I wasn't prepared for for the bloody shootouts. Um, I have no problem with them. I thought they were. I thought they were great. I thought the action sequences were like they were. They were like over the top in a good way. Um, you know, with just machine guns blaring all over the place. <laughs> um, I suppose it's kind of realistic. You know, I've never obviously I've never been in a gunfight or anything. But that's how I kind of imagine a gunfight would go. It's not all slick, cool like it is in like cop shows and stuff. Right. I'm sure there is a manic, wild aspect to it a lot of the time. Uh, especially if you're coked up like all these characters seem to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the gunfights were awesome. Um, uh, they they were they were put together really well. The the gun the action sequences in general. One of a uh, little tidbit that I always thought was uh, pretty interesting is when he showed this to produce. This movie was slammed by critics and audiences when it released. Did terrible in the box oh. office. But even Ferrera's wife at the time had walked out of the screening. She would not finish it. And they ended up divorcing wow. like a month later. And I was like, that's, I guess that's not surprising. I guess she didn't know what she was getting into. <laughs> like, I'm surprised. Case. I'm surprised it was it wasn't critically. Like, like I can understand the box office aspect of it, but I'm surprised the critics didn't like it. Because it's really it's an artful film. I, I think that's there's just kind of a thing with Ferreira. Like his stuff gets appreciated down the road, not when it happens. Like I think it's just because it comes off so. I think a lot of people see his stuff as mean spirited and I'm not sure if I nest, I see it gritty and I see it harsh, but mean spirited. Uh, it depends on the movie, I guess. I guess Miss 45 can be kind of mean spirited. Yeah. Um, like but, imagine being bad Lieutenant as your first exposure to him. Like it's a, it's a hard movie to watch at times, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, it's a great movie. And I think Adam, that's a good one for you to watch next. If you're interested in continuing down this road. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think Bad Lieutenant is it's a good movie. It's it's one of my favorites from Harvey Keitel. Um, yeah, yeah. But his violence is just like that. I, I mean, at least until I haven't watched anything he's done past like 1995. Because it just seems like from everything I see, it drops kind of in quality a lot. But saw, everything... What's that? No, no, man. Go ahead. No, as I say, I mean, Thirst, I think, was the last one I've seen of his that I really liked. But anything up to that, I mean, it's just... That's just how he does his violence, and I, I like it. That's kind of my thing, but I can definitely see the turn off. There's a movie he did in the 2000s called R Xmas. Okay. It's brutal. Like I don't know. It it has um. It has ice tea. Hold on. Ice, ice tea. tea's in it. Um, Victor Argo is actually in it again. That's funny. Um, anybody else? Let's see. That's anyways. It's it's rough. Like um yeah it's it's really rough and and he's still making movies he made a there's a movie he has that's in post-production right now 
I just added R Xmas to my watch list. I will check it out. <laughs> it's bad. It's when I was working at Blockbuster and we got these free rentals that would come in like before they were released. Mm-hmm. And um, anyways, yeah, it's rough. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, yeah. So again, just based on what you guys are telling me, then so you know if his films like are you know mean spirited or harsh in some way, I feel like King of New York maybe has a good balance then because obviously. Frank has this sort of noble intention. He does want to do good for the city. There is some harsh moments that happen to certain characters where you think ah, he didn't have to do that. Um, you know, with some of the characters that get killed, which I, w- I won't name, I won't drop any names, but there's one particular character that gets killed in the film. Uh, he's only like a minor character. He's not one of the main ones, but I thought mm, you didn't have to do that. You did it, but you didn't have to do it. Um, I won't. I won't say it now on on the recording, but I'll tell you guys who I'm referring to later. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see that in this film, but obviously, I also see the, you know, that you know that idea of you know having some sort of nobler, grand intention, which it seems might be missing from a lot of his other films. Um, so this one might be a good balance, a balance for him. Yeah, I'll give kind of an example of him in the early years. Since this is kind of happens within the first 30 minutes of the movie, I don't feel like it's much of a spoiler, but in Miss 45, you have two rape scenes to the same oh, girl. lovely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little rough. And I mean, I like Miss 45, but it's if you want to talk about, did they have to do that? That's kind of an example of when it happens twice by two different people. And you're like, this is the worst day this girl could ever have. And yeah. I guess that's what she's going for. But I was like, Jesus. So if you anyone who's thinking about getting into Frera and that bothers you, don't recommend Miss Forty Five. But Bad Lieutenant and Driller Killer and Thirst, those are great. Those yeah, those are all fun. I think Driller Killer might be my next one. The the title entices me. You could also he unofficially he he released a porn movie before that. Ah uh, yes. Nine Nine Lives of a Wet Kitty. I think it's called. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. I'm just looking at his filmography. What. The- True <laughs> introduction to Abel Ferrer. Good lord. Oh my god. One of the, the guy the guy who wrote King of New York is in that as an actor. <laughs> yeah, they've worked together for like the whole time. Wow. It's like his writing partner. They're just best buds. <laughs> I mean, That's once cool. you've done porn together, I think you were just about as open as you ever need. Everything to is on the table. Everything yeah. is on the table. <laughs> Literally. But, Driller Killer sounds fun though, and it's only like 96 minutes. That's nice. That sounds I love that's what Adam goes to first. Let me look yeah, at the yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be watching it soon, uh, again for me, but uh, it's up one of the next ones in my arrow watch. So uh, if you, if you oh, arrow, the next arrow two, released it, did they? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I might look into it. Yeah, for some reason, I thought Blue Underground put that out, but I guess I'm insane because I was just looking at my Blue Underground collection. I was like, they put that out, right? I it guess they feels did. like one that they would, but no, I think. I mean, I have the arrow release of it. Maybe they both did. Yeah, I might have. Because I, I don't think I own it. I was just looking to see if I did. I may have to get it here soon. They have a steel book and a, and a release, but... Um, yeah, it seems the only arrow did. Nothing about any other releases for it. Um, yeah. the, the artwork looks cool. You know, I, I thought that um, every character, I could explain pretty easily their behavior. Um, the, the only one I was a little bit confused about, and I don't know, Zach, if you have any light that you could shed on this or... Or of course, I don't know if you do, but I, I didn't quite understand the motivations of the older detective. Uh, he, he was shown as this like contemplative character throughout the whole movie, right? 
like he had these young buck detectives that were like outraged of what was going on and they wanted to get Frank White and he was quiet and I never knew throughout the whole movie I just couldn't tell like what they were doing with him obviously he's important to the ending but like even in that like I never could quite his I don't know if it wasn't fleshed out or if I missed something but his was the only character where I was like I just could never get a sense of him to me, to me, he felt like, you know, the guy at the end of Chinatown who says, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Yeah. I feel like he's that kind of guy where he just, he knows how things work and it's never going to change. He just, he just forget it, you know. And I will work. second um, Adam, because I was pretty much going to say he's the status quo guy. Like, yeah, this is the way it things what, are. This is the way they will always be. And there's no use changing it. It is what it is. It is what it is. That that was my vibe from him anyway. Just well, he's like six is. months away from retirement. And he's just trying to ride it out. Don't want to get involved. He just he just knows. It, not even that. I don't even think it's it's that. I think he just he's the grizzled cop. He's been through it all. He knows nothing's ever going to change. Even if you take down Frank White, somebody's going to take his place. You know, it's it's a never ending cycle. So he just he just he does what he can. If he has evidence, he'll arrest the guy. He's not going to go out of his way. Oh yeah, to to cause trouble because he knows it's not worth it in the end. He'll do his job, but he like works within the boundaries of his job. Sorry, Zach, I got you. No, I was uh, what I was going to note is when I was in college and we were going over like different police procedures and stuff. One of the things that was a big part, and I'll keep this short, was the idea that you always know there are like just for example, you know, there's drug dealers who are on this part of town. You don't send cop cars over there to go arrest them in that part of town because, well, what are they going to do? They're just going to move somewhere else. They're going to move to nicer neighborhoods. So the idea is, hey, you're making too much noise. You're going to mess things up. We know where these people are. You're sitting here trying to change something that is under control, at least in his mind. Like, we have control of the situation. You don't need to be doing all this. Yeah. Damn, it's so interesting. There's that one quote in the movie where he says, uh, Frank White is talking to one of the cops and he says, there's a hundred billion people, a uh, hundred billion dollars a year are spent on people getting high. I'm not your problem. And I was like, man, that's really good. Like bad guy logic. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's like really good villain logic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fra- Frank White is Thanos. It's the only way to, it's just, <laughs> it's just the only way to put it in the, in a modern context. Now I want to go to a theater where they're showing King of New York and it has that like opening weekend of Infinity War, like <laughs> theater vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see a subreddit now called Frank White was right. Because there's already a Thanos. Yes. Was, there's already a Thanos was right subreddit. I want to see if Frank White was right. <laughs> okay. I promise this is going to be a quick detour. But this is the problem with dictators, right? Because Frank White is 100% a dictator, right? Yeah. Like... Or he would be, if he was given that power, like he would become a dictator, right? 100%. He'd be Stalin-esque. Right? You kind of mentioned that earlier. And like that, that, that rung true. Like that, that's what got me thinking about this. So I don't know if y'all have been following what's going on with Sri Lanka that much right now, but there's been three weeks of protest because the president uh, is, is a guy. His brother is the prime minister. Their uh, nephew or grandson is the minister of sports. And their other uh, brother, and that, and that person's brother is like the minister of finance. And there's another uncle or something who's like in that mix that has like a lot of power in the country, right? And people were kind of okay with it as long as 
that things were going well because like tourism was rising, the war ended, like people were generally okay with it. But all of a sudden their economy collapsed because they made some bad investments. And like, they literally don't have uh, oil in the country right now. Like it's really hard to like lit a uh, gas fire or like drive a car. Like there's no oil and food is getting scarce and like the currency has gone through. So all of a sudden now they're like, hey, maybe it's not a good idea to have five family members like running the country. So there's like three weeks of protests. And actually the reason I'm, I'm kind of bringing this in is like today the, the president announced that his brother's going to be taken away from prime minister. But like my, my, my whole point of this story is it doesn't ever work, right? Like you no. get you, like just time and time again, like history shows that like even the dictators like a Che Guevara that have like good intentions when they come in, like it never works. Like it just, it, it, it's almost like there's just nothing in us that, that is, we're not capable of having that unchecked power as humans or something. It's the old adage, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. There's a reason why it's a cliche. It's because it's true and it's been proven time and time and time again throughout history. And that, that's the thing that like is kind of I'm holding on to when I'm watching this because I'm like, man, I kind of want to see Christopher Walken win. But then, <laughs> but then there's that knowledge of like, no, it's not going to work out. Like he's a bad guy. Like he's not, you have to go about it the right way. Like Exactly. What would happen is if he won, then there would be King of New York endgame where Tony Stark <laughs> and Captain America would have to go back in time to try and kill him before he gets into power. <laughs> We've already seen that movie. We don't need another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess that kind of ties into what we were talking about with the cop character, though, right? Like, because he, you know, Christopher Walken wants this absolute power. That's like his Frank wants absolute power. But we already kind of see what limited power, someone who almost has this absolute role in a very limited sense. Like, there's restrictions of what he can do in his position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even with that little bit, we kind of see that. He wants things done his way. He wants uh, this and that done. And it's almost like Frank is almost versus power versus absolute and versus restriction and how there are similarities in them in that sense. Yeah. I'm, al- I'm almost kind of wondering now as an Italian-American if this is even like a thinly veiled criticism of fascism. Because, you know, on a very sort of small scale, as you're saying, Zach, he, he essentially acts like a fascist leader. He's charismatic he has control over people but acts on a violent end yeah Uh, yeah that's a good right point so maybe it's just uh, i could be reaching just based on the fact that he's italian-american um i assume he is anyway by his surname um but or well i suppose it would work for spanish either because of franco um but i'm wondering maybe it's sort of like a, a sort of microcosm of the the dangers of something like, you know, autocratic leadership, essentially. So whether it be fascism or Francoism or communism, whatever whatever you want to put it, autocratic dictatorship, it was sort of like a showing a microcosm version of that. And the fact that it never works and you know, there's always a loser at the end, you know, whether it was Franco, whether it was Mussolini or Stalin, it never worked out. You know, that, I, I really like that reading, honestly. I, I've never thought about that where he's an Italian-American. Um, and he's at that age group, too. I mean, he was making films in the 1970s in his 20s. So, I mean, he he kind of understands a lot of that. That's actually a great point. I like that. He's, yeah, he's half Italian, half Irish. So, but, but, but I'm guessing his father by the last name. So mm-hmm. there's a good chance that his father came from that 
regime, right, to the U.S. Like, there's a good, there's a very high chance that they were a part of that. Mm -hmm. Possibly, possibly. You know, I there think we go. We cracked it. it. Yeah, yeah. I think we that's that's it. a good place to end, <laughs> King of New York. Cool. That will do. That will do. So, uh, like always, uh, we're going to wrap up this uh, episode with uh, what we call any other business. Just a quick discussion about stuff that we've seen recently that we want to give a shout out to. Doesn't have to be on the Criterion channel. Can just be something we watched and we we think we want to give a shout out to. So I'm going to talk about a film that I've been waiting to see for quite a while for since it was like first announced that there was going to be a restoration done after the film was lost for the best part of 30, 35 years. And that is the Iranian film by Mohad, uh, Mohammed, sorry, Reza Aslani, uh, Chess of the Wind or Chess Game of the Wind. It goes by, by two titles in, in English because I can't pronounce it in, in, in the native language, unfortunately. Um, I've, I've waited to see this film for so long. I had no idea it was even dropping on movie. One of my, one of my things I do before I go to bed, I usually go to bed at about 12. And before I do, I always go to the movie app and check what film has come out for that day. It's just like my daily routine. And that came up and I could barely sleep. I was so excited. I was like, oh, yeah. I, I cannot wait to watch this movie tomorrow. As like the first thing I do when I finish work tomorrow, I'm sitting down and watching this movie. Because uh, I've wanted to see it for so long and I've heard such amazing things. I'm just a huge fan of Iranian cinema in general. Uh, you guys know I'm obviously a big Kiristami fan. So I was I was really, really excited to see it to the point where I was kind of worried <laughs> that I was going in with too high expectations or something. But the hype is real with this film, with Chess of the Wind, the hype is real. Everyone since I think it premiered at Cannes last year um, before, uh, or maybe it's going to premiere this year. I'm not 100% sure. I can't remember exactly. But I remember there being a lot of buzz about it. It was being called a lost masterpiece and everything like that. And yeah, it really just it lives up to the hype. It's just such an excellently well-made movie. It has that sort of sumptuous um, reds and oranges and greens like in uh, In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai's film. It has that sort of visual aesthetic. Oh, cool. But it also has like a Bunuelian aspect where it's kind of like a it's essentially it's essentially kind of like a I honestly can't even describe it it's just it's just one of those movies that is just it's just a vibe the whole film is just a vibe if that makes sense mm -hmm. <laughs> like it does it does have a plot the, the basic plot is that um there's a family there's a, a girl uh, who's uh, wheelchair bound and she her her mother dies and so she's left with her stepfather in in this mansion in Tehran and he basically says that, you know, he's taken the, all of her inheritance. She's getting nothing. He has no interest in being a father figure to her. And so she kills him and convinces one of her, one of his nephews to help her sort of hide the crime. Um, so, and then they'll, they'll sort of share the, share the money. It's all very Hitchcockian, you know, not really what you'd expect, but it's just the way the film is sort of directed and shot you know it's very almost surreal in a way um there's obviously a lot more mystery to it it's very maybe it's kind of got this but maybe it's, i'm being spoilerish here but it has very lay diabolique vibes about it as well in terms cool. of the plot and stuff i feel I like i don't means, but i like the sound 
you never heard, you've never seen Diabolique. Oh, okay. I misunderstood what you said. You're good. Okay. Yeah. I completely yeah. misunderstood what word you said. That was going to blow my mind. I was like, I already knew what I was going to pick for our next week if you hadn't <laughs> seen that film. That, that would have been crazy to me. Um, yeah, I don't want to say too much about the film. You just have to kind of experience it. When it eventually does come out on your side of the Atlantic, just make it like one of your priorities. It's just it's just an insane film. It's, it's yeah, live, lives up to the hype. I'm Here's sold on it uh, for sure. Now I have a question, Adam. Since this was a 1976 film that was um, kind of lost, does it is yeah. this going to go on like your 2022 list, or do you not count that? I'm just curious. If you I don't really do it. Uh, I, I don't, don't really do it because I don't go to the theater that much. Um, I don't really do it to be honest with you. I don't even know how many 2022 films I've seen. I don't think it's probably. I doubt it's a lot. Uh, on my letterbox here, I might as well just check and see. Uh, but no, it's an, it's 1976. Like it's not like, you know, that's that's when it was made. It's just because it was suppressed and kind of lost. That's the only reason why we don't have it now. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I would uh, I would still call this a 1976 film. I was curious because I had that issue last year with the amusement park when it came out the Romero film yeah, that was lost yeah. because the Lutheran Church didn't want to release it and stuff. So I was like, do I count this as a 2021 film? That <laughs> film that film is so good. Like not including short movies, I've only seen not including one short movie and one documentary, I've only seen three 2022 films. Oh, okay. So yeah, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Scream, and The Batman. It'll become four next week when I see Doctor Strange. I only really tend to see the the blockbusters because even if I did get a chance to go to the theater, even though there's not one really around me, even if I did, they wouldn't show. You know, they would they would only show the blockbusters anyway. I don't have an art house near me, unfortunately. It's a two-hour train ride up to Dublin to go to my nearest art house. Oof. It's quite an event. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it wouldn't matter what, what list yeah. they put it on, whether it was 2022 or not, it wouldn't matter because it wouldn't be a long list anyway. What about you, Zach? What have you seen? Um, so I've gotten a little bit back more into reading recently. Um, and kind of one, like if I'm ever in the mood to get back into reading, I go to Stephen King because... I've read a lot of them. He's an easy read for me. Um, Adam, I understand. I think It's one of your favorite books, right? Yeah, I love It so much. It's yeah. definitely like a top three book of all time. Yeah, and I've been um, going through The Dark Tower again. So usually mm -hmm. when that happens, it means a lot of uh, what I watch is going to be King-related. Mm -hmm. So I ended up watching the miniseries 112263. It's one of my favorite books by him. That was great. Um, I watched the 2013 Carrie yesterday the day before yesterday it's not good um it's worse <laughs> than i remember it being but the one i want to talk about is um back in the day stephen king used to always do miniseries uh that was a big event not as many i guess we say miniseries events or whatever you want to the say stand, right it was like a big one the stand was a big one uh they did a shining yeah and yeah. the one he did specifically as a miniseries it wasn't based on anything he'd written before was the 1999 The Storm of the Century. Um, I had remembered at five years old watching that movie with my parents. We'd stay up for the two hours and watch it for three nights straight. And so it's on YouTube. The entire four hour and something film is on YouTube. So I decided to go through and rewatch it. And it is just so good. Like it's, it's a little wonky in some areas because like it has 19, late 1990 TV movie CGI in some parts. And oh, that yeah. doesn't look right. But I mean, the other effects, like they use miniatures and 
um, just to kind of give it an overlap for anyone uninitiated with it, essentially it's about this main, of course it's in Maine, take a shot, um, island community that's off the mainland called Little Tall, which is also where Dolores Claiborne, because everything's fucking connected, takes place. Um, and they're about to hit what they call the Storm of the Century, where it's a big blizzard coming in, big snow, and all the residents are preparing for it. Well, when this happens, there's a man whose name is Andre Linoge who comes in and beats a woman to death with his cane. And he just repeatedly keeps telling them, give me what I want and I'll go away. And it goes through this mystery of trying to figure out what he wants. Is he even human? Um, because he seems to be able to do some really strange things. And, um, you know, it, it's just really well done. Like, you know, you go back and watch and you kind of worry. It's like, oh, this is a TV movie. But really well done. Like, credit where credit's due. This, it's really, like, the characters are great. Uh, Colm Farome, I think is how you say his name, plays Andre Linoge. He's very creepy and very charismatic. Great villain. Um, and while it's long and sometimes hard to recommend, you could cut that movie into, like, six different parts and watch it really easily on YouTube. And I just, I, I think it's really worth watching. It's one I'm glad I revisited because it's been, like, 20 years since I've seen it. Can I, as a King expert, can I just ask you about, because um, I've read a few, I've read a good few King books, but I've never, I've never read Pet Cemetery. Is Pet Cemetery the book good? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Neither of Because I've seen, because I've seen both versions of that and they're both shit. <laughs> the, the, and the thing, I, you know, I, I've read, I've never lost a child, so I can't talk about that part. But one thing I've heard repeatedly from people who've read it, who've lost a kid, is say it is the hardest book they've ever read. Just oh, because he imagine. like nails it so well of what it's like. Okay. Um, and it's 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 devastating emotionally. I think it's one of his scariest books, which I still think his scariest book is Salem's Lot, um, which I love Salem's Lot. Uh, but yeah, I, if you don't base the book off the adaptions, because the book is excellent. Okay, because I do own it. I just never got around to reading it because I remember I watched the newer version like a few years ago. I'm sorry. And I was like, and I was like, <laughs> that's not very good. And I was like, okay, well, and literally only like two, two or three weeks ago. So in the meantime, since we last recorded, and the 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 sort of original version that they adapted came onto Netflix, and I'm like, oh, maybe this one would be better. And I was like, no, that wasn't very good either. The only good thing about it was Zelda. the awesome Ramon song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good too. The performance of Zelda is good. I like her better in the uh, in the original. Who is the... Zelda again? <sighs> trying to say how to describe it i can't even remember she's really a child like an actress wise but it's the blonde head one then let me see if i can just figure out oh oh i know the sister the yeah yeah yes 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 okay that that is that is good that it that is good she's good that part freaks neve out so freaking much she hates but in both adaptations she hates that part it really it really messes with her um, yeah, that part is good. I'm sure it's probably really well done in the book as well. It is. Uh, so, um, but that is my recommendation. Maybe by the time we come back to record, I'll be off my king kick for a little bit and have something else. So, <laughs> Chris, what do you got going on? I'll just j- jump in a little bit. I'm, I'm sneakily like a huge Stephen King fan. I, I probably don't have the volume uh, of books that you've read from him, but I remember reading The Stand and being like, um, two, two emotions. One, I can't believe how long this is. And two, I can't believe how much I want to keep reading it. Yeah, and the then, stand is great. It, it, it like, yeah, it's it, King 
he's better. I hate to say this. When he was on Coke, he was a little bit better focused. <laughs> so even though he meanders in the stand, it's not as bad as he does now. But yeah, he would still go on forever. Even but I like I like when he writes long form stuff though because I love the detail. That's, yeah, that's one of my that's my favorite part of it is like it's the detail. old is, is when it's when he goes back and like tells the story of Derry and like through yeah. the different times they've dealt Pennyway. That's my favorite part of it. Um, so I, I love what I actually like I don't mind when I get a big chunky King book because I know there's going to be a ton of detail in there. Exactly. Yeah. He writes it well. And then so right after the stand, by total coincidence, actually, I was talking to somebody and they're like, you have to go read. Um, what's the first book in the Dark Tower called? The Gunslinger. The Gunslinger. Thank you. Yeah, you should check out The Gunslinger. But like, just make sure if you read it, make sure you don't stop there. Make sure you read the second book because like it really makes sense. Like it really makes the first book make sense. So I did that and I was like, well, now I've read two. I have to finish The Dark Tower. And even though it kind of is a slog at like for moments at a time, I would say overall, I loved like almost every part of that. And like, anyways, I just think he's a brilliant, like, I don't know if there's, he's just a storyteller, right? He's a very natural like storyteller. And I, I love watching him in interviews. Like he'll go on, like when he gets invited to colleges to talk, he's really good at it. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Um. Anyways, speaking of some people that are not naturally great storytellers, let me do a quick run through of five movies that I saw on a plane because we had nine hours uh, one way and, and 10 hours the other way. Um, even with a five-year-old, I was able to, to sneak some movies in. So quickly, I'll start off with The Eternals, uh, Marvel movie. I always go in, to, as much as I have a tendency to be like a little harsh on them, I go into every one with optimism. Because I am kind of a fan of the movies. Um, not a fan of this one. Uh, the Eternals was a waste of time. What a, what a terrible movie. Like, I, I love, love, love the way that they set up, like, the next big bad guy. And I'm curious what they do with that. Uh, everything else was a total mess. Like, I can't believe the script was greenlit. Have you all seen it? No, I haven't. Of course I have. <laughs> Adam, I'm not trying to be overly harsh. Like, did I thought that like they they tried to pack seven origin stories into into one movie and, and bring it around a compelling event and make you care for each character, and it made each individual character so reductive. And like, I didn't care that there was like a, a deaf speedster. Although, what a cool idea! Like, they could have done so much with like a deaf speedster, or like there was that one black gay mechanic, like cool idea but like the way that they introduced these things and layered them in it all had to be like one-liners and like by the end of it like i i, I just i don't know like i totally it has agree. it has joss whedon's justice league vibes to it um i oh, still i still i still kind of like it i i don't i think people are I, I think people are pretty harsh on it i don't think it's like people talked about it like it was like the worst marvel movie ever i don't think i think it's far from the worst I mean, Thor 2 still exists. Exactly. You know, as long as <laughs> there will never be a worse one than Thor 2, you know, and that's yeah. why and that's why I'm so happy that Thor 3 exists because Thor deserved better than Thor 2. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it, it is. It's messy. They try and pack so much stuff into three hours. Like I said, it it's it's a bunch of origins. It's kind of like what, the, what Justice League was. It, was. it was a bunch of origin stories crammed and then tried to actually get a compelling plot and everything like that there's a lot in the movie that you have to try and unpack and it doesn't always hit the right beats emotionally and stuff like that i still like it 
I'm not gonna watch it again anytime soon. Um, but I definitely don't hate it as much as a lot of other people do. That's and um, that's probably Chloe. and look, if I'm being honest, you know, that's probably my Marvel bias, and that's fine. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, th- what's her name? Did it? Uh, Chloe. Um, Chloe's yeah. Chloe Zhao. Yeah, Chloe's yeah, the, yeah. She. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. That's yeah, an interesting choice for a Marvel movie. Like, really interesting. Well, that's what Marvel have been doing now for the last yeah. 10, 15 years. They've been getting these indie directors because well, they, they know they're happy to take it take the paycheck so that they can go and make the stuff they want to do. We had this conversation before, I'm sure, yeah. with actors. Yeah. But um, yeah, they they you know they're happy to take the paycheck. They're they're happy to work under Marvel's model while still having some creative freedom to kind of do their own thing. Like with Taika Waititi, his his Marvel films yes. are very you know, it's distinctive visually, as definitely has his vibe to it. But you know, they obviously has to follow the blueprint and the, the Kevin Feige blueprint. But they're allowed to sort of express themselves, and then they get a shit ton of money, and they can go make whatever they want. So yeah. everybody wins. I, I will say, as someone who's probably the least Marvel excited person, I am super stoked for the new Doctor Strange. Oh, I can't wait. I've my ticket yeah, already bought. Got Raimi. Uh, they, they got Raimi out of retirement. I'm I'm gonna go support it. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Um, uh, what, so, were, what, what else did you see, Chris? Tell us. Really, what else? I, yeah, we won't have the same depth discussion on each one. Just really quick, uh, Coda was. Uh, I, I was a little disappointed in Coda. I, I will admit, I cried like a baby for the last fifteen minutes. It's a tearjerker, like it's an old school '90s, like like just rip your heart out kind of tearjerker. But but in the sense of like um, believing in the human spirit, like like it's one of those where they they make you cry because like you want to believe in like the the human spirit and the way this family comes together and supports each other. I just, you've got a Marvel bias. I have a bias against movies that are direct remakes of a foreign movie and then win Best Picture. I'm like, come on. Like, like where was the family, uh, it's called the, the Famille Billier or something like that. Like, like where was the mention? Of, why didn't they bring that director on stage or that writer on stage at the presentation and be like, thank you because, I mean, this movie exists because you did your thing. Like, I just, it's a, it's a pet peeve of mine. I'm never going to, it's never going to. You were not a fan of The Departed winning. Oh, that's what started it for me. (laughs) No, I I was like, where is the, it's a Korean movie, right? Yeah. Internal Affairs. Yeah. yeah, Infernal Affairs. Infernal Affairs. No, no, no. It doesn't matter. But yeah, like, I was just like, where is the director for Infernal Affairs? Like, what's happening right here? But anyways, yeah, that's exactly. Uh, I don't even think it's Korean. Isn't it Hong Kong? Isn't it Andy Lau? Uh, oh, you might be right. B- big apologies if that's true. It's been a long time since I saw Infernal. Hey, it's been a long. I think I saw um, him when The Departed came. It was Andy Lau. Yeah, it was Andy Lau. Uh, oh, okay. He's the guy. Yeah, he's in. He's, he shows up in some one car Y movies. Great. Oh, okay. So yes, then. But like, anyways, just like I don't mind that they're remaking movies. Like, it's it's part of Hollywood, whatever. But like, make it really obvious that you're not this creative genius that like came up with this idea and like. Like, just bring the peop- the right people up and be like, this. they did it, you know? Like, Reddit gets mad if you don't give a link to credit if you, if you have some idea. It's like the same thing, right? Like, just, yeah. just give credit where it's due. Okay. Um, uh, last Night in Soho, I wanted to like it so oh, bad. No, no I, I like, I'll, I'll say it's okay. I just, I don't know if I'm an Edgar Wright fan. I like, Ooh. and I know that, like, I love Get him. The pitchforks. I, I love him so much as like, as like who he represents. So I will always support him and I want him to exist. Um, and last night in Soho had so many cool ideas in it and the visual style was so unique and it was great. Um, his movies just have like a little bit of like a um, uh, unprofessionalness to them that like bugs me. Like, I don't know how to say it. 
there's just like there's just like a, there's a quality there that like I want them to be like either slightly more serious. I don't know. It just always feels like him. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I will probably buy last night in Soho. I want to support him. I like the idea of him. And maybe on a second watch, I'll like it more. Um, just a just a quick question: Have you seen Hot Fuzz? Yeah, they're funny. Like I laugh in those. Oh, Hot Fuzz. That's it, so good. <laughs> Chris, so poor Chris is gonna feel so alone. No, it's fine. I I, I know, <laughs> like I know the love for him, and it's earned. I just I don't know. I never could quite get it. Uh, uh, is it Anya Taylor Joy? Anya Taylor Joy. Yeah. Anya Taylor Joy. What a face! Like. Like just in terms of being a unique, like like I want yeah, to see yeah. more movies from her. The witch. Uh, she's seen, in the North. Yeah, see the Northman. Okay, the witch, Northman. Okay, yeah. Like I haven't seen those. I just like I'm so glad she's acting. Like she carries so much emotion and like uh, I I don't know. She's a very powerful I, actress. I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard her. She has a Netflix series uh, called Queen's Gambit, and she's like the main character in that. I've heard it's very good. So if you're looking for something, they don't go to the theater to watch. Um, uh, sorry, it's taking a long time. Really quickly, the uh, James Gunn Suicide Squad loved it. I'll I'll defend that movie forever. That movie's great. Three hundred uh, million dollar trauma film. Exactly, but that's my trauma <laughs> bias coming through. Like I, <laughs> I, it was perfect. I think it's. I, I can't Did you wait catch for Lloyd? Did you did you catch him in it? No, I was actually maybe I was. Just he's in the bar. The next time you watch it, he's in the bar scene. Uh, okay, uh, and then No Time to Die, uh, not a good Bond movie. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment on that one. Not a good. I haven't Bond seen movie. a single Bond movie in my life. Oh I wow! Was, oh wow! Never okay. seen. One. I was I was going to say I haven't seen a Bond movie since The Quantum of Solace, but you have you have me bet on that one. Yeah, I've um, never yeah. seen one. Not a big spy espionage guy, so I've just never tried. That's kind of the crux of that series, yeah. <laughs> um, not, I don't think that's going to be remembered well. It's a super long, and and I don't like Ralph Fiennes' character and or Ray Fine or whatever. And uh, yeah, I not not a good movie. I didn't think it was well done, which is a pity. I don't know what they're going to do when they replace um, Daniel Craig, but anyways, that's it.